Hello and welcome back to the Come Follow Me Bible Challenge. My name is Jeremy Howard. I am on staff as pastor here at Orchard Hills Bible Church in Payson, Utah. Thank you for joining me. Glad that you have come along for the ride today as we continue our journey through the New Testament based on the schedule that has been made by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints as that organization is going through the New Testament this year. I am just coming along to offer some thoughts on each section as a Bible church pastor for those who might be interested in such a thing. I understand not everyone's interested in that, but if you're here, I trust that maybe that's something you're interested in. So today, the section for this week, I guess I should say, is John 7 through 10. Next week, what do we have? Luke 12 through 17 and John 11. All right, so... Not quite sure what passage I'll pick out next week. But this week, John chapter 10 is where I'd like for us to go. The the last part of John chapter 10. The last half, basically. So John chapter 10, starting in verse 22. The heading in the New American Standard 1995 Bible, which is the translation of choice around here, that has, uh, for the heading, Jesus asserts his deity. So the translators here are kind of showing their hand a little bit before we get into the text itself. Uh, This obviously should raise some eyebrows if you're somebody who says, well, Jesus never claimed to be the one true God of the universe, or Jesus never claimed deity. Well, apparently the translators of this version thought he did so in this section. And spoiler alert, me too. All right, so let's read John chapter 10, starting in verse 22. And I think, I think I'll think i go ahead and just read to the end. And, and I don't plan on having any cross-references today. It'll just be this passage. So let's go. John 10, 22. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify about me, or of me, rather. But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father... Do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, 
so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I in the Father. Therefore they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing, and he was staying there. Many came to him and were saying, While John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. Many believed in him there. All right, cool passage. I love this passage. It's a very important passage for Christian theology, and I think you could probably see why if you were listening closely and following along there. There's just a lot to take in and to see that applies to our understanding of who Jesus is and uh, really who God is. So let's, uh, let's back up a little bit and examine a few things in detail. <coughs> so you'll notice here at the start of the passage that I read, if, uh, yeah, let's just look at 24. The Jews say, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, there are sometimes in the Gospels where people make imperative statements to Jesus, where they because this technically is an it's an imperative, right? It's a command. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Uh, and and sometimes that happens in the Gospels, and it's it's not like a sin; it's not a big deal, I guess. But there's just something about giving the Lord Jesus a command <laughs> that I just—it's like, shouldn't that be a question? I don't know. I, I just always feel that way whenever I'm dealing with authority, someone who is above me. I just never feel right giving a command. I don't expect my children to give me imperatives and say, do this, do that, whatever. Uh, I expect them to ask it in the form of a question. Could you please, you know, fill in the blank? Maybe that's just Midwestern sensibility that I have. I'm from Missouri. Maybe that's what it is. Perhaps it is the way it should be. But either way, it's the way I am, okay? And uh, I'm just never comfortable with anybody giving Jesus commands in the Gospels, and this is yet another one of those points. And because it is you know, the Jewish people who were rejecting him, for the most part, uh, I think we can say, yeah, they probably should have worded this differently. But whatever, here's the case. Uh, whatever the case may be, I should say. Here it is. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. So, a great setup for Jesus, right? And Jesus says, I told you and you do not believe. <laughs> it, what, you think I've been hiding this? You think I've uh, you know, not put it out there for you to examine? I mean, Jesus' whole ministry here has been public. He's been teaching from city to city. He's been working miracles. It's all out in the public eye. I've told you, Jesus said. So the problem isn't me telling. The problem is you do not believe. That's what it says. And he calls the works that he has performed as evidence, as a witness to this. Okay? So I've told you, you don't believe. I've done these works. And he says he's done them in the Father's name, and they testify of him. So there's this courtroom-type language or illustration that's being used that the works that Jesus has performed— they're on the witness stand testifying of Jesus. They're they're like hard evidence that Jesus is the Christ. He's performing miracles. He's that great prophet that is to follow. Uh, Moses said in prophecy in Deuteronomy 18 that there would be one who was raised up in Israel 
from among the countrymen, someone like Moses, but who's going to be the great prophet that everyone is to listen to? Moses said to the people of Israel, you are to listen to him. Whatever he says, you're to listen to him. And we know that part of being a prophet, uh, not every time and every instance in Scripture, but seemingly a part of the major prophets in Scripture, what God would do is give them works to attest to what they were saying. Moses performed miracles in his prophetic ministry. So did Elijah and Elisha. Uh, There were others who did such things, and we go on to see the apostles and prophets of the New Testament who could also work miracles. And so uh, there, you know, maybe were certain times in history, certain periods in history, that's an argument people have made, certain periods in history where there was an outpouring of miracles. But it's really, I think, linked to the prophetic ministry that God will give somebody, that there will be miraculous signs and wonders performed. I don't believe that's still happening today. I believe those serve their purpose. But with Jesus, that was happening. He's this great prophet that everyone is to listen to, and he's giving them reason to listen by showing up at a wedding and making sure that the party keeps going with plenty of wine. That's the first miracle recorded in this gospel we're looking at here in the Gospel of John, where Jesus is at a wedding and turns the water into wine. So he's, he's giving them reason after reason after reason, healing blind people, healing deaf people, uh, just performing the supernatural acts that no one could possibly do on his own power of his own accord. And Jesus said, these works, they testify of me. Yet you don't believe, and he gives them a reason why they don't believe. You do not believe because you are not of my sheep. They were not God's people. They did not have believing hearts. They uh, were not saved, born again, brought into covenant relationship with God uh, by being saved. None of that had happened. And so they absolutely reject the witnesses to Jesus' messianic status. So this is really important to to grasp here, because you you think, perhaps you think, if I was an unbeliever living at that time, if I was someone who rejected Jesus, and I saw what they saw, well, then I would be a believer. Uh, I mean, there, there are people who like pray this way, right? Where they're like, God, show me a sign, give me a sign. Well, is that really what is needed? Is it, is it, that a person lacks the sign or the miraculous evidence. And then, you know, if that person just had that, then he would be a believer. The Bible never presents it that way, ever. Okay? Uh, Because people think that they are judges. People walk around in their natural fallen state thinking that they're little judges of the universe and that they are the arbiters of what is right and wrong, what is true and what is false, and that they are owed all the evidence so that they can make a final declaration about what reality is. That's kind of just how we think as fallen human beings in our natural state. That's our approach to life, which is very bad. That's not the way it should be. But alas, it's how we are naturally speaking. And so people can kind of get in their mind, well, if God would just give me a sign then I would believe. And he hasn't given me a sign yet, so there's no wonder I'm an unbeliever. I am right in my unbelief. Well, the reality is, if God grants you a sign, like, say, he comes down 
and takes on human form, walking among us, working miracles, teaching us truth, never sinning, living the only perfect life there's ever been, draws a huge following, draws a lot of attention. Uh, We kill him, and then he rises from the dead, and then there are like hundreds of people who witness that he's risen from the dead. If all that happens, there's still going to be people who don't believe. And of course, we know that to be true because we're living it, right? And even during Jesus's life, there were people rejecting him. That's why he was crucified. It was because as he walked this earth for those 33 years, there were plenty who rejected him. The majority rejected him. And he was so hated intensely that he was killed. So it's not that people need the miracles or evidence. It's that people need to be God's sheep. Uh, That's obviously terminology that can be used in a bad sense, like, oh, don't just be one of the sheep. You know, we kind of look down on that terminology. Don't be a sheep. You know, be an independent thinker, be your own person, yada, yada, yada. But when it comes to our relationship with our Maker, we are to declare with the psalmist in Psalm 100 that we are the sheep of his pasture. That's the posture we are to take, that we are the sheep, and he is the good shepherd. And so uh, you, you start with that. If you don't start with that and you walk around like you're the judge, well, you're not going to arrive at submitting to God, who is the ultimate judge. You have to start by posturing your heart the right way and saying, there is a God, I am not him, I am one of the sheep of his pasture, and then you're in a position where you're ready to hear what is true. All right, well, let's get back into the text and keep following Jesus along here. He says in verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. What a great statement of security for those who belong to Jesus. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. And there's more to this uh, earlier in uh, the, the chapter, John chapter 10, where Jesus is talking about being the good shepherd. But he says, no one will snatch them out of his hand. And then he also says that the Father has given them to him. The Father is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch these sheep out of the Father's hand. So how secure are these sheep? Those who belong to Jesus, those who believe, those who are uh, believers in the gospel, followers of Jesus, because that's what happened. That's what happens. It says in verse 27, they follow me. Well, they are preserved forever. They will never perish, according to Jesus here. No one will snatch them out of Jesus's hand. No one will snatch them out of the Father's hand. And Jesus here says that the Father has given these people to the Son, and the Father is greater than all. Now, uh, we must understand a couple of things here. One, uh, Jesus, of course, when he's saying this, is a man, not just a man, but he is a man. He's 100% human and 100% God, as he has entered into human history, taken the form of a bondservant, born of a woman, born under the law, etc. He existed in the form of God, Philippians chapter 2, and yet he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he took on the form of a servant. And so here he is, in that form, in this human earthly ministry, speaking these things. When he says the Father is greater than all, he's, of course, speaking 
as a human and identifying with humanity and making a sweeping sweeping statement about all of humanity that the Father is greater than all. He is the creator. He's greater than all of creation. Now, in saying this, he is not saying that the Father has a greater divine status than the Son. He's not saying that the Father is the original God and that he is the Son is, you know, junior God or God 2.0 or something like that. Okay, we're about to see what he means explicitly in the next verse. But we just need to make sure we recognize why Jesus said that. Jesus is speaking as a man among men, and he's pointing these Jews, remember, he's talking to Jews, he's pointing them to the Father as the greatest one, which is, of course, very appropriate. It's what the Old Testament teaches. It's, it's true that the Father is greater than all. And, uh, and, and that's what is going on in that statement. But he also tells us that the Father is the one who gives the sheep to the Son. The Son is the Good Shepherd, as he teaches earlier in the chapter. And the Son, as the Good Shepherd, gets his sheep from the Father. Now, this is pretty interesting. And I think it does have to do with predestination and election and all that stuff. And I'm not here to make this episode about that, all right? We, we will definitely get to that later on down the road. But uh, there's a, a basic recognition that we need to have that the Father is giving a people to the Son. He's giving sheep to the Son, and the Son shepherds them as the Good Shepherd. And in this way, the Father and the Son both have their hand in the future of the sheep because the Father's the one who gives them, the Son's the one who cares for them, and they will never perish. They're secure in the hand of the Father. They're secure in the hand of the Son. And again, notice how Jesus says, first, no one will snatch them out of my hand, verse 28, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand, verse 29. So that may lead you to say, well, whose hand are we really in? Father's hand or the Son's hand. And then Jesus just drops this bomb on us. In English, it's six words, John 10, 30. I and the Father are one. All right. Now, this is an interesting phrase, and it could be taken a number of ways, but the way it should be taken is in context. (laughs) So what is Jesus saying? There are lots of, I guess, options you could put on the table if you want to be comfortable in whatever your preconceived theology is, and maybe you have good preconceived theology, and so you may choose the option that matches that theology, and if you have good preconceived theology, that's great. However, that's bad. That's a bad way of going about reading Scripture. You must always read Scripture in context, and sometimes that will challenge your preconceived theology. So here when he says, I and the Father are one, he's not saying that the Son is the Father. He's not saying, or he's not, uh, I guess another way to put this, he's not collapsing the identities of the Father and the Son and saying those titles or those designations just don't matter anymore. We're the same person. He's not saying that because he just said in the verses leading up to this that the Father gives the sheep to the Son. Well, a person can't give something to himself with two different titles like that, okay? So you have the Father doing something, he's giving, and the Son receiving. 
that requires two persons. So he's not saying that their identities uh, are collapsed and they are one person. But they're one something, right? Because that's the language he uses. I and the Father are one. Well, it makes sense here to recognize that Jesus is saying that he and the Father are one and the same God. Again, speaking to Jews, it's clear that the Jewish Old Testament teaches monotheism. If you ever doubt that, pick up your Bible and start reading in Isaiah 42 and just read for a while. All right? The Old Testament very clearly teaches there is one God. No doubt about that. So Jesus here is identifying as that one God. And he's saying that the Father, too, is that one God. I and the Father are one. You might have read this verse before and thought, well, that can't be the case uh, that he's saying that he and the Father are one God because they're separate gods. They're separate beings. That's that preconceived theology I was talking about earlier that you'd need to question. Because what happens when someone has that pre-understanding is they read a passage like this and they say, Jesus must mean that he and the Father are one in purpose, or that they are one with their intentions. They're talking about saving a people. The Father is giving the sheep to the Son. It all has to do with salvation, and so they're one in the purpose of salvation. Well, there are two issues with that. The first issue is, that's not what it says. Because there are Greek words uh, that were used back then. The Gospel of John was written in Greek. There, there are Greek words that could have been used to explain or quote Jesus saying, I and the Father are of one purpose, of one mind. I and the Father are of you know one intention or plan or program. So uh, that totally could have been what Jesus said. John would have been faithful to articulate that the way Jesus wrote it. He could have used the Greek words for, uh, at the, of the time to say that, but none of that's the case. I mean, that, it stops where it stops. I and the Father are one. So you got to deal with the grammar of that. But then also, again, context is the way we interpret this rightly in context. So let's look at the context and read the next few verses. After Jesus says, verse 30, I and the Father are one, look at what happens next. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus asked, why are you stoning me? What what of my works are you stoning me for here? And the Jews answered him, verse 33, we don't stone you for a good work. They are seeking to stone him for blasphemy. It is not blasphemous to say that you are of one purpose with God. It is not blasphemous to say that you and the Father are of one intention or that you are cooperating with God in the plan of salvation. Like, that's not blasphemous. Any of these interpretations of Jesus' words in John 10.30 that people want to put in there, that's not blasphemy. There's something very specific here that they're stoning them for, and it's that it says... You, being a man, make yourself out to be God. In the minds of the unbelieving Jews, they were saying, Jesus is just a man, and yet when he says, I and the Father are one, he is saying he is one God with the Father, and that's blasphemy, because only the Father is God, and he is just a man. That's blasphemy. So the Jews, his audience, understood him rightly when he said, I and the Father are one. 
they recognized he was saying that, that he was divine. He was making a claim to deity, to be the one true God. And for them, that was blasphemous. They did not have a doctrine of the Trinity, and they were not ready to accept a doctrine of the Trinity. And notice Jesus' response here isn't to say, no, 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 you got me all wrong. I was just talking about our purpose, our plans. That's all. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus, of course, had great opportunity here to say, no, you, you misunderstood me, and then say something else. But he doesn't go there. Instead, look at what he does. I have to take a drink of water. Hold on. Much better. All right. Look at what he does. They said, you being a man, make yourself out to be God. And he answers them, verse 34, has it not been written in your law? I said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, why do you say of me, you are blaspheming just because I said I am the son of God? Now, I read that in my own concise way. (laughs) I'm not going to call that a translation because I was not translating anything. I was just consolidating the English there. But verses 34 to 36, Jesus does not reject what they're seeking to stone him for. Instead, he appeals to Psalm 82, where it says in the psalm, I said you are gods. God speaking to some subjects, calling them gods. Now here, we definitely have to pause. Because if we're saying the Old Testament is clear that there is only one God, if the Jewish religion based on the Old Testament is clearly monotheistic, then what on earth is Jesus doing citing a passage that says, you are gods, plural? Well, uh, Psalm 82 is what's being quoted. I have actually written, I don't know, I guess you can call it an essay on Psalm 82. If you go to my website, jeremyhoward.net, or you could just Google my name, Jeremy Howard, and search the divine council myth. You will find a four-part series that I did talking about Psalm 82 and the various interpretations that exist. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints interprets Psalm 82 and Jesus's quotation of Psalm 82 here in John 10 to mean that human beings can become gods that it's possible for creatures to bridge the gap between them and their creator and become creators themselves and to ontologically evolve from a human being to a transcendent creator. Um, That is not the way that should be interpreted. That's not the context of Psalm 82. That's not good interpretation of Psalm 82 or John 10. So I I deal with it more at length in that, that essay that I wrote. So to get to the point, what is Psalm 82 about? Well, in Psalm 82, uh, it says that God takes his seat, takes his place in the council of the gods. Well, uh, we have in the Old Testament, on a few occasions actually, human leaders being called gods. They are called to represent God in the way that they lead, in the decisions that they make, in their exercise of authority. In Israel... Judges were called gods at certain times. And here we have something similar, whether it's specifically in Israel or whether it's about world leaders, whatever the case may be. 
you have human leaders, those who have been given authority by God, because as Romans 13 tells us, the only authority that exists is, is God, and all authorities on earth derive their authority from God who gives it. So you have these these leaders with authority from God being titled as gods. Again, it's a Hebrew Old Testament thing. It's not like it's on every page of the Old Testament, but there are maybe five instances of that happening in the Old Testament. It doesn't have to do with human beings evolving to become ontologically the nature of their being like the one true God. That will never happen. There will always just be the one true God. And it also doesn't have to do with some high class of angel who is divine. Uh, That's the Michael Heiser interpretation for those familiar with his book, The Unseen Realm, or anything like that. It, It also isn't God talking merely to angels, but instead this is God talking of human leaders and calling them gods and talking about the authority that they have as rulers over the people, reflecting God with their authority. That, of course, is a major aspect of the image of God, is to have authority on the face of the earth, to have dominion. Remember back in Genesis 1, that's what was to happen. Man was to exercise dominion and authority over the created realm. That, of course, uh, particularly means exercising authority over animals, but there are some who have positions of authority over other human beings. And that authority comes from God, and that's part of exercising the image of God, and God calls them gods in that sense in Psalm 82. So Jesus here is being accused of blasphemy by making himself out to be God, by saying, I and the Father are one. He's being accused of blasphemy for that. And he says, now wait a second, what about like earthly rulers? They're called gods in Scripture, and so if they are called gods, how much more should I be called God as the Son of God? (laughs) That's the argument he's making. He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. If these guys over here, who are just mere human rulers, if they're called gods, what about me, the Son of Man, who's working supernatural wonders among you? Should I not also be called a God? Now, he's not saying he's just merely a God. He's not saying he's merely like those human rulers. But he's saying, if you can justify using the term for them, why is it blasphemy for me to say it when I have all the more reason to make claim to saying I am God? Let's read that again. With all that in mind, let's go back and check this out again. Jesus answered them, has it not been written in your law I said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Therefore, they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. Wow. So, again, giving someone signs and wonders, that doesn't, that doesn't change their mind, does it? Uh, it's right after this, after Jesus says, hey, look at the works that I've done. Believe me on account of the works. No, sinful man doesn't do that over and over again. They reject that, and it says they were seeking again to seize him. 
but he eluded their grasp. Now that would be a cool scene to like have on film to like watch a, a movie of Jesus eluding their grasp. We don't have any details. It just says that. So that would be very interesting to watch. Maybe when we get to heaven, we can request that. I don't know how that works, but I'm sure God's able to do it. So keep keep that one in mind for when you get to heaven. Pull that one back up. Well, uh, Jesus made this argument with them. Uh, look, if the psalmist refers to human leaders of his day as gods, then why can you accuse me of blaspheming because I said I'm the son of God when I have all the more reason to claim such a title? That's his argument. And from there, because like I just mentioned, they reject him, he leaves and goes to uh, beyond the Jordan, this place beyond the Jordan where John was first baptizing, it says. And many came to him and said, John performed no sign, Yet everything John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Huh. You wonder who these many are, right? Many came to him. Did did anybody elude their grasp with Jesus, I wonder? Was anybody involved in, in this situation where the Jews were coming after Jesus and have their mind changed because they heard Jesus uh, preaching with authority? and then followed him out to where he was somehow? I wonder. Maybe they were a totally different group of people. But either way, Jesus' sheep believe. So there he is over by the Jordan where John was first baptizing, and his sheep hear his voice, and they know him, they follow him. It's happening in real time during his earthly ministry. Those whom the Father has given to the Son. Pretty cool, huh? Okay, very well. Thank you for joining this study. Always so much to see. I do a lot of this just off the top of my head. Like today, I didn't have any notes, so sorry if it was a little choppy. But any questions, thoughts you have about any of this, I would love to entertain those. I'd love to be able to help you out if I can or answer any questions that you have. If you're in the Payson, Utah area, would love to see you here on a Sunday. Orchard Hills Bible Church in Payson is where we are. We meet on Sunday mornings. Stop by any time. We'd love to meet you. And until next week, God bless.